Hi there, I'm Neve Shaw and this is Humans of Space, a podcast about curious people. More specifically, it's chats with people that I've met along the journey so far in getting to space. People from many parts of the world, people who've inspired me, people who do interesting things, know interesting stuff, have figured out great things, or people who want to change the world. Curious people who are happy to chat with me about their lives, their passions, and explore together what drives us to be the people we need to be. I like to think that Humans of Space is a blend of space, science, curiosity, and creativity for ears of all kinds. But I guess that's up to you to decide. Today, I'm talking to Barbara Imhoff. She's an Austrian, internationally active space architect, design researcher, and educator. She's co-founder of Liquifer Systems Group, which is an interdisciplinary team comprising of engineers, architects, designers, and scientists. She also is involved in designing space habitats, both for artists and interdisciplinary, but also for the space sector as well. Barbara, it's always a pleasure speaking to you. So thanks a million for joining the Humans of Space podcast today. How are you? Hello, Neve. I am fine. I'm here in Vienna. I'm surrounded by some construction works, but everything is good. You might have heard the knocking <laughs> in the background, and I can also see it here on the recording signs of the audio. So, <laughs> You're moving into a new space, are you? Yes, it's going to be renovated, and so it'll be sort of new, yes. I'm happy to just be speaking with you and I can hear you loud and clear and that's good enough for me. So we'll just briefly just check in with the lockdown. How has Vienna been doing with COVID and any restrictions that you guys have had to suffer? Well, I think we also adopted the general European COVID uh, restrictions or regulations. Um, it worked. We had um, a, a, you know, a lockdown, a complete lockdown uh, for some time, but then you know everything loosened up and now we are trying to find adequate measures for the currently rising numbers of COVID-19 cases because I'm working a lot, you know, on an international level and for the space industry, um, teleconferences, video conferences have been a usual way Mm. of working since many years. So it didn't really change anything. It just, you know, cut back on traveling, which I was quite happy about, to be honest, because the traveling was getting too much with the possibility of doing video conferences each hour, you know, one after the other. This is also extremely tiring. So I think there has to be some kind of good way of managing it and not getting too much into traveling or too much into video conferences. After all, we are human beings and we also need the, the contact and, you know, seeing each other in person, feeling the body, even if it's two meters away. I couldn't agree with you more. So Barbara, for many people listening, you're probably the first person they'll have ever come across who is a space architect. It's a really interesting crossover. How would you describe what you do? Well, I'm a trained architect. Um, I actually uh, graduated from the University of Applied Arts, so from an art school. I started and then I combined it after my studies. I went straight into the International Space University, the Master of Space Studies, And so I combined architecture and space, which means I am designing for humans' environments so that they can also live beyond the Earth's atmosphere, meaning in a vacuum environment, in a pressurized vessel, 
um, in a very harsh and extreme and also unforgiving environment, which means that the houses uh, we built in space are quite technologized. They are these kind of technical skins around us which protect humans from the outside uh, atmosphere and environment. And what are the extra factors then that you have to consider in excess of what architects have to consider when they design? I'm not sure if they're really, you know, on the basics, it's always the same because the humans stay the same, right? So what we as humans need is we need, you know, water, we need food, we need specific pressure, pressurized environment. So on Earth, we have one bar, so that's what we like. And we also want to have this in space, more or less. Um, We need a certain oxygen level, uh, nitrogen level, all these kinds of things. So this is the environment we have to establish. That is quite different from Earth because there's no such environment outside of uh, this spaceship. So we have to establish it. So as an architect, one has to do a lot with taking into consideration all the requirements for building this biosphere where humans can live in, then we have much less space available. There's also a very hard border between the inside of a spaceship and the outside because we, you know, we can't have doors and windows open. We can't have, you know, if it's too hot inside, you know, just open the windows and have some fresh air inside. This is not possible. So there's no mediation, sort of. You can't have a a winter garden or some kind of glass house, you know, in front of the facade, you know, mediating between the living room and the garden. Um, So it's always this very harsh border. And I think these are the differences that we have to establish these, all these life support systems, a biosphere, and then we have very limited space. So we have to think about uh, how to, use this space very well, not only in an economic or efficient sense, but also in a way that we think we can live comfortably and well in in this environment, meaning, you know, we still need maybe, you know, a sort of living room or a private room. Uh, mm. We need like a crew quarter. We yeah. need a table um, or some sort of, you know, gathering place where we can have dinner together. You know, when I look at the uh, astronaut crews, I mean, these are very important things. So it's a matter of designing a space to specific rituals we have that form the group that are important to us in the everyday life. So let's say this kind of gathering space, dinner table but also at the same time, you know, create private areas where we can retreat, where we can sleep and have some um, privacy when we talk to, you know, our husbands, wives, um, partners, children or whoever on earth. And where do you start when you get the call to say, we want to design this? Do you have a process or... Is it always a different point of entry for each project? I think it's always a different point of entry. Firstly, because um, we hardly get calls. It's not that we are in this kind of huge market with lots of business opportunities. We are in a niche market with very few opportunities. So a lot of opportunities one has to create oneself or with other partners, mostly actually in consortia with research institutions and other companies. And there can be two ways, either answering a call for a proposal or creating um, a proposal. So 
kind of sensing what would be a good thing to investigate, to research and to develop, and then creating a proposal around it and trying to get funding. Um, so it's either a top-down or a mm -hmm. bottom-up. And then, you know, when I look at the details, or let's say we win this proposal, yeah, then I think there's always a main partner, uh, like the client or a uh, a lead partner or a coordinator, they might create the requirements or the boundary conditions in which we work. When I look at the a module for a space station, let's say there will be a new space station circling the moon, it's called Gateway. And so I'll have to think about how do I take the modules or the house there And of course, I, you know, in space, I use rockets. And with these rockets, uh, they have a certain space for cargo, for freights. And so this is probably then defines the size of my module. And then that is already a, a boundary condition yeah. I'll have to work with as an architect, not only as an architect, also as an engineer, because of the technology of these, all these life support systems, which are the, the most important thing to get right. Yeah. Uh, when people want to survive in space, then, you know, we work a lot for the space engineers. I mean, we work with them, but how can I say their requirements, they always would prevail. You like to design about maximizing space or is it about making the environment as human centric as possible? What kind of priorities would you have that's different from the engineers priorities? I think that the engineers, they have a system, a machine to design and to build. And of course, there are also the human factors engineers. So they would also look into human machine interfaces and maybe a little bit into, you know, how humans, you know, would live in that space. But actually, it's the architectural competence that really has the focus on creating the environments for humans. We would look at maximizing the space um, for habitability. We would also, of course, look at optimizing the systems, the system, the life support system boxes in that way that we can enlarge the space for the crew. But we would also look at comfort. You know, we look at yeah. all different kinds of aspects, but we also look at emergency paths so that, you know, just in a normal building where you also have to proof that you can evacuate people in case of emergency. You have to do the same uh, in space, of course. What's your favorite part of the process? I think, of course, in the beginning, when everybody's more open to like yeah. new ideas, um, I think that is a very exciting part. But then, you know, when everything comes together and you really see the things you designed being built, I think that's also very exciting. There's this one story, if I may. Yeah, please. Um, we designed a test habitat for uh, future uh, missions for Moon and Mars. And uh, this uh, test habitat was built for Earth. It was called SHE, Self-Deployable Habitat for Extreme Environments. And um, it can house two people for a mission duration of two weeks. And it's very small, it can be transported. And then, you know, the idea was when it's on the moon, you know, when it is the real thing and it's on the moon and it can deploy and can double its size. So you can pack two SHE modules into one rocket. 
So we really smart. Yeah. So we built this uh, shear habitat as a, a test bed to test on Earth. And then it was ready. And then we had the opportunity through another project, through Project Moonwalk, to bring it into a real mission simulation. So where we mimic, we are on Mars uh, yeah. for two weeks. And then we use the habitat as Mars control station, basically. And I remember that it was so moving and it felt very emotional when I saw uh, she habitat being brought into this mission simulation to Rio Tinto in Spain. And it, you know, it was taken off the crane and it was really, I thought like, oh my God, that's like the, a huge step we have achieved. So it yeah. was very emotional moment. So yeah. I think that is also part of the process. And that is uh, something very special. Do you have a habitat module in the Antarctic or an experiment? Can you tell us a bit about that one? Actually, we have a greenhouse in the Antarctic. It's a project that's called Eden ISS as an international space station. So it's actually a test bed again. It's a greenhouse where we grow tomatoes and peppers and cucumbers and Swiss chard, strawberries, to test how much of these vegetables we can grow within a certain period to support a crew on the moon and on Mars. So that's why the ISS comes in there. We have a small experiment for the International Space Station in a small uh, segment of the greenhouse. And it has been there for more than a thousand days now in the Antarctic. Wow. It's close to the German Neumeyer station. I think it's already the third year we run it. The whole project is led by the German Aerospace Center in Bremen. They also sending people frequently to look after it. And the interesting thing is that it's the size of two containers. So one container is more machinery and, and some kind of small laboratory and work desk. They're connected to each other. And the other container is the greenhouse itself. And there, you know, a container has maybe um, 12 square meters. And so through a shelf system, we could uh, create um, 10 square meters of growth area where we really grow the vegetables and we grow it with very limited amount of material, meaning in an aeroponic system. And so uh, the roots are all in the dark and some dark boxes and they get sprayed with nutrition every 10 minutes. Um, and the nutrition is, you know, like, what, you, what vegetables would need, some water, some salt, yeah, some yeah. potassium, you know, something like that. And so the, we don't need soil. We don't need a lot of water. Uh, so very minimal uh, material and to create um, a quite large output. So on these 10 square meters of shelves, we produced over nine months, I think, nearly uh, 270 kilograms of vegetables. What? That's amazing. It's a huge amount and, and that could be even increased. So it's a, I think that the whole system, the, it's a, it's a big consortium with international partners so that the team has really come up with a quite promising solution for future lunar and Martian bases. And Barbara, when you studied architecture, did you always know that you wanted to move into space architecture? No, the interesting thing is that I never was interested in space. I know I had some, you know, in primary school, I had this classmate and he always wanted to become an astronaut. He was really fond of that. And I always thought like, you know, what 
that is strange, you know, crazy person. And <laughs> so I wasn't really connected to that. But I think when I studied architecture at the art school at the University of Applied Arts in Vienna with Wolf Briggs, he's, uh, you know, one of the partners of Kupimelblau, a very famous avant-garde architecture in office on an international, you know, top level. He always made us think further and further and further into the future. Um, I always had an interest in technology. I always wanted to go to the Technical Museum in Vienna every Sunday. My parents already got a little bit sick of that, but <laughs> I was always pushing for that. I was so intrigued by the machines and you know, by all these things. So I had a knack for technology, not that I was you know, very good in physics or anything of that, but I just was curious, I guess. And so I combined future architecture and technology. And I think when you go further and further and you think, okay, where will we live in 50 years? And, yeah. and how will we live there? And what's the architecture going to look like? Then you have to include in all the scenarios that we will be living in space too. That's how I got into space. Because then I you know, started investigations, you know, and asked the head of the Austrian Space Agency, who I met uh, quite frequently, all kinds of questions until he said, listen, I think you should go to the International Space University. And that's what I did. And then through that, I went to NASA and uh, pursued design jobs there. But I think what I was also always interested in environmental issues. And I only realized... Um, two, three, four years back that, you know, space has so much to do with all these Absolutely. issues um, yeah. we are concerned with right now, um, you know, all environmental aspects. Because, you know, when you go to space, you have very limited resources. You yeah. have to think about recycling. You have to think about self-sufficiency. You have to, you know, going to the moon, you have to think about how can I use the material which I have locally to build a habitat. And also recently we looked at a study for the European Space Agency with OHB on how can we use 3D printing and recycle materials, put it into the 3D printer and reprint things we might need, you know, on a case-by-case -case basis in a lunar base. So yeah. it's suddenly I see that, you know, Everything's somehow connected, and and I get yeah. back to things which already had which matter to me very much right now, and which already had mattered yeah. to me when I was sixteen years old. And Barbara, how, what do you think it's going to take for standard architects to look at, say, your work and apply it to gross urban planning of future homes? The answers are within. I think your work in terms of solving problems on space, on energy use, on sustainability and clever recycling of water systems and almost having like what we call the closed loop system of space that everything is renewable and it's like a self-contained system. What's it going to take for cities to start to see and identify that the solutions are already there in space? I think that there have been a lot of initiatives that started, I think, with the smart city and now the green city and um, a lot of thoughts and, uh, and projects and programs are going currently in that direction, looking at all these sustainable 
or resilient uh, solutions. I think what's equally important is creating a narrative and an inspiring narrative somehow that can bring people together, that can also, you know, create a, a positive image of a future. And that is why one of our projects is called The City as a Spaceship, which tries to do that. It tries to take the image of a spaceship and, you know, brings it on top, over, or within the city. And we try to look at spaceship systems, um, such as, as you mentioned before, you know, these closed loop systems or recycling, different aspects of recycling, but also living in, you know, smaller, denser areas in cities, in mega cities, in urban areas, mm. and also living, and that is very particular of the International Space Station and of these kind of space programs, international space programs, is the, the multicultural uh, and multidisciplinary aspect. Yeah. So where yeah. a lot of different people with different cultural backgrounds come together and work towards one goal. I think that is quite an inspiring image or picture for any kind of city or any kind of life on this spaceship because bringing people together, creating a common goal, that's quite a valuable thing to do for work or in life. I hope that awareness will grow the space saving efficiencies that you have had to consider in terms of like, okay, if you don't have an atmosphere, this is what you do. If you don't have water, this is what you do. If you don't have energy, this is what you do. That they might loop back into how we build cities sooner rather than later. Who gave you your curiosity? Well, first of all, it was the visits to the Technical Museum. My father is a biologist, so he also took us into nature a lot. And so he showed us many things in our environment here in Vienna. So we have these swamp areas, the very particular landscape uh, of the Danube, around the Danube. Um, He shared his knowledge with us. And was the path to architecture always clear for you? I don't know. I just remember this one instance that I was, um, we were driving home from I don't know where, and we had this really tiny car, what is Renault 4. And I was with my brother, we were always sitting, of course, on the back bench. So, and I was a little bit tired. So I, you know, used half of the bench, my side, to, to lie down, and I could look up into the the night city, you know, we were driving through the night city and I could see the houses, you know, and uh, the streets, but, you know, different kinds of perspective, you know, because I was yeah. looking from from down up in a way, you know. Yeah. And I suddenly, I don't know, I just, I just remember that I said, I want to become an architect because it just suddenly came to my mind and I was 14. And, and since then I've been pursuing this. Is it everything you imagined it to be? Oh, I never imagined it to be like this, I guess, <laughs> to get into <laughs> that field of space architecture. Then later on, I was uh, in my studies, in my architecture studies, I heard about the Architects Collaborative, which was founded in the United States by Walter Kopius, who is also the founder of the Bauhaus. And he wrote this book about his collaborative office in the he found it in the US and how people work there and what kind of buildings they did and so on. And and I think I was quite inspired by the way he described how he worked, this collaborative, cooperative aspect. Yeah. And I think then 
When I started in the, in, in the early, you know, in my first years, it, there was always this kind of the architect as the creator. The Architects Collaborative really gave me a perspective that um, one can also work differently and thus also live differently. My father taught people from emerging countries and we would have them over for dinner. You know, I got to know all these people from all over the world. You know, I always thought, okay, if I could work somehow across countries and, you know, and have friends everywhere, that would be great. I can imagine that that was very inspiring. Especially when you are in such a small country somewhere in the middle of Europe and it's the, you know, the mid 1980s or so, which weren't really, you know, which were very far away from today's, um, you know, living conditions in in Europe. Your self-expression artistically seems to be something that drives you as much as the design part of what you do. Can you tell us about more of the artistic pursuits that you're involved in? Because I actually graduated from an art school, I have a larger community, um, especially here in Vienna, of people who are artists, you know, work in a more artistic field. A couple of years back, I think I started at the University of Applied Arts together with other people uh, in a team applying for projects as part of artistic research. So that is one component, I would say, because this artistic research is slightly different than scientific research. It yeah. uses the same operating system of writing a proposal and winning and so on and so forth. But the way it's being conducted, I think it's probably, it doesn't have this kind of set framework as you would have in science. Within this program, uh, we have been lucky to work on three projects and they all deal more with biomimetics and architecture and biology and integrating biological systems into architecture. We're currently looking at a nonverbal communication between humans and microbes through machine learning. So there's all varieties, yeah, more structured way of pursuing the arts. Because I work in the space field, a lot of artists in my environment they do their own symposia, I would say, or have their own platforms. So they have become interested in cross-collaborative work. So that's where I uh, started um, participating in, I would say, conversations, which are more art-related, but have to do with space, space and art. I created a topical team for arts and science uh, for the European Space Agency. Sometimes I even produce my more artistic videos which then get exhibited in group exhibitions. For example, once I was invited to the Antarctic Biennale expedition and I created radio broadcasts and videos and photo footage from this. So it's, you know, there's this other part of work which sort of connects, let's say, to the Eden ISS greenhouse in Antarctica, but also... uh, you know, is more an artistic work. Did you ever imagine that this was the kind of life that you wanted or did it just all evolve for you? I think it all evolved. And I think it's probably also about making choices and taking opportunities. I don't think I make reckless decisions or anything like that at all. No, I'm not, certainly not the risk-taking person, but I think with some things one can be a little bit more daring. And what do you think gives you the strength to be daring when it's so much easier not to be. 
I think maybe because I never had this dream of, okay, I, I you know, when I am 40, I need to have a house built yeah. or I have to own a flat or I have to have, a, I don't know, a fancy car. These values uh, are not important to me. Yeah. Or these valuables are not important to me as such. And, and so I think that when you when you think okay what can you gain and what what can you lose you know when you have to make a particular decision and then i think i would always opt for maybe you know getting to know people getting a new experience rather than you know working for one or two years in a secure job and you know saving enough money to buy whatever this was never of interest to me and with you know if you don't have these kind of requirements or yeah. if you don't make them for your own then i think the options are become more in that respect to make the decisions to maybe also you know go abroad experience something new in another country what is success to you oh my god that's a very difficult question <laughs> You know, my mother is a medical doctor, a psychiatrist, and for her, the only thing which was always important is that we are healthy. So yeah. it's you know, nothing else matters. It's just when you're healthy and you have enough, you know, to eat and you have, you know, a roof over your head, then that's okay. You know that that is yeah. it. And and I think that was quite coining uh, for my life. So so I think. Um, in that sense, um, you know, I never, I made a career which wasn't existing. You know, there were no typical steps. And there were a lot of, you know, of course, obstacles. And, you know, you, as a woman, you make um, quite some experiences in a very male-dominated world. Yeah. Especially when you're a company owner. But on the other hand, because it's all, you know, so unheard of, there are also no regulations and um you know, you can go to places where other people might not be able to go. I think success is when you can make your own choices, when you have the feeling that you're in charge of your own life. Did you come across any obstacles because you were a woman so far in your career? What I realized is that when you have your own company and uh, your managing director or co-managing director, that you really can operate on a different level yeah. But at the same time, when you're a woman and an architect in this space world, which is male dominated and engineering dominated, you'll always be like the, oh, um, yeah, we don't need any beautifiers or um, yes, uh, let's have her do something, maybe some nice drawings or, you know, think, things like that. So th I think this was the in the beginning, that was more the case, of course, you know, when they see that you can also do other things, that you have a team, an interdisciplinary team, and you have a track record, then you know, this becomes less and less of a problem. There's a special way, you know, when men come together and they talk business, and then um, when you as a woman come into that kind of group, then the conversations go differently and, and maybe you still, you're not taking completely serious and but they all, you know, are respectful, but you never can get into this inner business talking circle. It's atmospheric things you realize, and they're hard to detect. But I think 
that's still there. What you're also alluding to is the work speaks for itself. But I certainly think the kind of work that you're doing helps without a doubt, you know, being so successful and being such a trailblazer in in such a unique and essential part of the space sector. And so then the last question that I'd ask you then, Barbara, is what do you hope for the future for planet Earth and its inhabitants? I hope for the future for planet Earth that we will all come together and treat planet Earth as a spaceship of which we are the caretakers and astronauts and that, you know, with all the challenging um, new situations we will encounter in the future, that we will still somehow, you know, feel the responsibility and also act accordingly. As ever, Barbara, it's always fascinating talking to you. So thank you very much, Barbara. That was fantastic. Thank you. Thank you, Niamh, for this lovely invitation. It was a pleasure talking to you. If you like this podcast or if you like what I do, or if you'd like to know more or have a question, you can sign up for updates on my website, neveshaw.ie. This podcast is funded by my loyal Patreon subscribers, the subscription content service that allows me to create and share exclusive videos, advanced episodes of this podcast, provide special deals and discounted offers for patrons of my work. And thanks to those patrons, I get to make the work I want to make and can continue in my mission to get to space in earnest. And in return, I get to include them all in the adventures every step of the way. I couldn't do any of it without their support and I will be forever grateful to them. So thanks. And maybe you'd like to become a patron too. So if you would like to support my mission to get to space as storyteller, further details of Patreon's membership benefits and about this podcast, upcoming events and activities, they're all available from my website, neveshaw.ie account. I'd love to hear from you. But we can connect in other ways too. If you're on Twitter, my handle is Dior underscore Neve underscore Shaw. If you're on Instagram, it's Dior underscore Neve underscore Shaw. Or on Facebook, follow my page, Get Neve to Space. If you just want to watch more content, you can check out my videos on my YouTube channel, Neve Shaw. Humans of Space is produced by Mark Gardner and Catherine Cunning at Oxford Sound Studio, Oxford in the UK, with music by Tom Beasley. <laughs>